Well, today we're going to continue our study of uh, chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel with this very dramatic passage discussing the abomination of desolation and great tribulation described in verses 15 to 22. And so as to keep our study in context, I'm going to begin our reading from verse 1 again as we, as we lead up to today's passage. So I invite you to turn again to Matthew chapter 24 to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. I'll begin in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as had, as had not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to... Uh, lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then it will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of Christ. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word,
We rejoice where we come, uh, we come to the rock of ages. Lord, we come to the word that, uh, as you said, as you kind of point to there in verse 35, although heaven and earth may be shaken, though it may fade, though, though, though so much passes and comes and goes, your word remains. And so we find a, a sure foundation, a solid ground in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we, we pray that um, as we study this, this portion of scripture and these great events that were foretold and we look at its at, at uh, all that has all that took place leading up to Jerusalem's destruction, Lord, we pray that we also that we would uh, we would be one, like those who uh, seek to hide ourselves in Christ, that we would seek the refuge that is found and abundantly provided in your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we work our way through Matthew there, again, I'll just always, generally I've been trying to read through that. It's a longer portion to begin our message, but hopefully by the end, as we get through it, you'll have it memorized and know it's like the back of your hand. I, I'm certainly just benefiting, even though I, even while studying it, to add on to this, reading it every week. Um, I, I trust that you've noticed that you start to get more of a sense as you look at one verse. You're you're better equipped to also be kind of holding on to something that we studied, you know, in another verse, and, and to be able to harmonize it all together. And that's just the discipline. That that's just that's what hap- That's that's just. Going over again and again. And of course, that's the blessing of, of studying the Word and being in the Word every day, right? Uh, I, I, yes, if you don't know that, then you need to get to know that. It's, 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 it's a blessing. So up until now, Jesus has clearly stated that the, the end is not yet. And so now we enter into the events surrounding the siege of Jerusalem, which will signal now we're entering into the imminent uh, coming of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, leaving the Jews who have believed in Christ with really, we'll see, just enough time to escape from being swallowed up in God's wrath that was about to be poured out uh, upon Israel. And I'll continue to remind you, as we go through this study, that the judgment spoken of is not, it's not so much of... of of God's judgment upon the Jewish people, or, or might I say the Jewish individuals, as we go through. As it is upon his, his judgment upon the old covenant nation of Israel, who, if, if, you, if you go through John again and again, John 8.39, was not doing the work of Abraham, but the works of their father, the devil, Jesus said. Rejecting their Messiah and persisting in the rebellion in spite of the gospel of grace that was boldly being proclaimed throughout 40 years, right? Over, over this generation, uh, of course, they, they, they rejected Christ. Many of the Jews who were part of his crucifixion, Peter preached to them in Acts 2 and it says they were cut to the heart. Peter said, you did this. And they were cut to the heart and they said, what must we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, right? And so, and so you have uh, the gospel going forth and you have people being brought in. But you also have, along with that, a hardening of the hearts of many as well. And so as we'll see, while this passage is primarily about the events leading up to God's judgment upon the nation of apostate, of unbelieving Israel... Its message is ultimately about God's grace and salvation of the remnant of Jews who believed in Christ and who escaped the dreadful day of judgment that fell upon Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that's, that's, that goes hand in hand with this passage that we look at today. So verse 15, again, that's, I mean, this is the, the big, the key text here. So we'll, we'll, it, it'll be, we'll kind of, our study will be a little heavier on this passage, and then we'll, it'll launch us into the rest. Verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, 
let the reader understand. Now Matthew uh, refers in, in chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 27, verse 53, uh, to Jerusalem as the holy city. And this, is, of course, is because this is where the temple stood. And it's holy because it's, it's, that's where God's presence uh, dwelt in a, in a unique way. Of course, elsewhere, the, the, the scriptures is clear that, you know, the temple, that God's presence cannot be contained in, a, in just a building. But there is a sense in which God himself said that he would dwell there among them. And so, um, so, that's, so, we're, so this is the holy place, the holy city. Now, some people believe the holy place here to be a reference to the future temple. And, that, and we've kind of gone over the different views of that. But I just wanted to point out here that, however, when we, when we look at everything about the context that we've gone over up until now, especially Jesus' previous statements, which is why I always go back to verse 1, about the first century temple's desolation and destruction, this would naturally lead the disciples to understand, like this is what they're asking about, so this would naturally lead them to, uh, to understand that Jesus is referring to the holy city and to the temple, which the disciples here stood in awe of as Jesus spoke to them on the Mount of Olives. So they, so they wouldn't have in their minds uh, you know, a future rebuilt temple. They're asking about the temple which, that Jesus just told them was going to be destroyed and that one stone would be left on another. And this, again, this is, they have a kind of a beautiful panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem as it stood on the Mount of Olives and overlooking it and the temple in all its glory at that time. But what in the world is the, the abomination of desolation? I mean, just that name. I don't know. I, I, remember, I remember as a kid, you, you hear different stories and you talk about this stuff. But that, I mean, that name is just an incredible, like it just stirs up the imagination. The abomination of uh, of desolation. What is that? Again, understanding this verse, even as the, the parentheses there emphasizes, is key to understanding the rest of this passage. And fortunately, that even, I just want to mention that note when, when Matthew says to the readers, let the reader understand, was actually confirming to the audience, it should be, it should be encouraging to you, but is encouraging to the original audience that this was not meant to be some mysterious, esoteric kind of warning, just that, you know, that only some select few could understand. But it, it was given with the intention that it would be understood. Let the reader understand. Is what he, it, don't, uh, don't fool yourself or don't get caught up in thinking that it must be something more complicated. Let the reader understand. Now the word abomination... Before we get into that, the word abomination refers to something that was thought to be abhorrent or detestable. Abhorrent, detestable. And when we remember that the disciples had been raised in the Old Testament context, the word abomination would immediately jump out to them as it would relate to the desecration of worship, right? Of that which is holy. Worship that God detests, either by false worship or by profaning true worship. So that is to say, uh, by offering God less, right? By taking shortcuts and 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 just and offering Him less than what He asks, what He what He commands, uh, or by adding to what He commands, by adding our own ideas and 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 kind of what we think what would impress God. Contrary to what he's already revealed to them. So that would immediately come to their mind when, they, when they're talking about abomination. Now for such an abomination to include desolation, right, is, is for it to involve what, what that word suggests. It would, to, to make the place of such worship desolate. Right, to be forsaken, to be desolate by, desolated by God, to be forsaken by his people. Uh, Daniel 11.31 foretold how the northern king of Greece would set up in the temple the abomination that makes desolate. And that took place in 168 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the Greek king of Syria, captured Jerusalem and he offered the sacrifice of a pig on an altar in the temple to Zeus. 
So you have an example there. No, I don't believe that. That, that is not the, the abomination of desolation Jesus is mentioning. Um, because, and we're not going to have time to jump into Daniel. But it, essentially the reason is because the timeline that Daniel gives doesn't line up um, with Jesus' time in, in Daniel 11.31. However, again, Jesus does point to Daniel. And there are two other chapters where we have uh, an abomination that makes desolate mention. In, in Daniel chapter 9.27 and in, ja- in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Again, because, uh, because the timelines given in these passages could not refer to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in, this, in the 2nd century B.C., but they do line up perfectly with Jerusalem's destruction in 70 A.D. So again, we're not going to be able to get into that. But that is why I would point you to those. In Daniel 9.24-27, it identifies a, 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 sorry, identifies a most holy place. Nine, in Daniel 9.24. And he identifies that holy place with Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, the, the holy city and the sanctuary. And then concludes in verse 27, On the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you see there's this abomination that makes desolate and there's a a decreed end. God has, has spoken it and it's going to happen. Now also Daniel 12 likewise mentions in verse 11. And from that time the regular burnt offering is taken away. And the abomination that makes desolate is set up, and there shall be uh, 1,290 days. So from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So this is roughly three and a half years that, that is mentioned there, which I believe refers to the Roman Jewish war. And the siege of Jerusalem from the spring of of A.D. 67 to the destruction of the temple in September of of A.D. 70. So you have that timeline when when Jerusalem is sieged that you you don't have the sacrifices being offered like you did before. Now, that, that verse continues. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 dates. So we have an addition of uh, 45 days there. And he says, he continues, but go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So again, that, that additional 45 days during which the faithful, I'm just interpreting this for you. I'm not, we're not going to be studying Daniel today, but just so you can see what Jesus is pointing to. That 45 days would refer to the time in which the faithful Jewish remnant, the Christians, waited in the mountains until the destruction had passed. So down, you have the days that, that being prophesied uh, hundreds of years in advance. Now, in addition to Daniel, I, this is what I really want you all to see. Because it's, you, can, you can see it yourself. It, you don't have to... Uh, it, it doesn't require as much... Um, as, as much digging. In, Daniel, uh, in addition to Daniel, we have the account written by Luke. And uh, who's Gentile readers, right? So we've, we've gone over Matthew, primarily had a, obviously had a Jewish audience in mind. Luke is known for having a more Gentile audience, Gentile readers, who would not be as familiar with Daniel, right? Uh, with the Old Testament scriptures as Matthew's Jewish readers. Which makes the meaning of this passage... As, as plain as day for us, as, as Luke basically interprets it for us. So if you turn to Luke chapter 21. Now people who, who... There's people who don't believe that what we read in 21 was the same message Jesus gave in the Olivet Discourse. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm not going to read through it, but I just want you to give you a taste... To, to, and I would encourage you to just to compare Matthew 20, Luke 21 and Matthew 24 on your own time. But I mean, Luke 21, it begins, Jesus looked up and saw the... Uh, sorry. And verse 5. Luke 21, verse 5. 
And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another uh, uh, that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will all these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are to take place? Right? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. Uh, so, so you have all that going on in verse 10. They said to him, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence, right? So, I mean, we're, we're going through the same, uh, the same general message. Um, verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will, uh, you will gain your lives. And then this is, and so this is where we come to verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, in case we, again, we're confused or we think this is a, in a different context, a different message that Jesus is giving, what does he say next? Verse 21, he says, so, so when you see the Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what are they to do? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are in it, uh, who are out in the country, enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Until their decreed time, until God says so, essentially. So again, that's where I come back to and I compare Daniel, uh, uh, sorry, Luke 21, verse 20. Is our interpretation for us? Is our inspired commentary, inspired interpretation of Matthew 24, verse 15. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then let um, them know that its desolation has come near. And so thus the reader would understand when the time came when Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies, and of course, there was, there was much military, uh, again, Jerusalem, to an extent, was sieged for three years. But, but there was a clear, uh, there was a point in which Titus, when they, they, they surrounded the city so that nobody could come in and come out. In which the abomination of desolation laying siege of the holy city would be clearly identified. In Jesus' words, at that point, really here, they turn from being prophetic a witness to the signs to him giving now pastoral guidance to those who find themselves in these times. Like, what are, you, what are we to do? Okay, so now we know, right, this is when, this is the timing. Now what? That's when verse 16 says, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Now again, many people who understand this to refer to a future fulfillment will interpret the tribulation described here as applying to the entire world. And, and, is, and is essentially, it's inescapable, right? If it's, if it's a world, a global judgment. However, as, as I look at the context here, uh, I, can't, I cannot reconcile it with that. I, we, we see here a local judgment. Uh, we've, we've already noted the focus of the current setting being upon the holy place, being on Jerusalem and the temple, followed by the remaining verses, which are essentially directed in verse 16 to those who are where? They're in Judea. When this situation arises and they are to flee specifically to the mountains, that's that's like that's that has to be specific to that place. I mean. Where are we going to... We, we always joke around here that the Laurentian Mountains aren't mountains because I lived in Alberta for 10 years, right? And Rosie's always... In, she grew up there, 
I say, you know what, let's just hum- humbly call them mountains. But she grew up in that, so she's adamant that these are not mountains. But so context, geography, right? That affects how we, we use our language. Now, so they're being told, those who are in Judea, let them flee to the mountains. Uh, they were surrounded by mountains. And also in verse 19 to 21, they're also to pray. We're going to get into this later. But they're to pray that the season and the day would allow for the possibility of, essentially, of, an, of their escape. And once the Roman general Titus had completely encircled the city for, for that final time, it would soon be sealed off to the outer world. And even while that was happening, even, so as it was sealed off, uh, reports, especially from the Josephus account, tell us that chaos and violence was already beginning to break loose within the city itself. So it's not a place, like the, the point, like everything about it saying, get out. Flee. Those who sought to pack up and load their belongings or return from the fields to take his cloak would miss the small window of escape that the prophecy and instruction of Christ here afforded to them. So indeed, Jesus says in verse 22, we're going we're gonna to just I'm gonna look there and then come back. He says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. That's, this is how severe it was. And the word translated human, human being there is sarks, meaning flesh or body. Which, so in other words, I believe it's emphasizing that he is speaking of being saved from physical death here. He's not talking about spiritual salvation, but he points that no flesh would be saved. He's talking about being saved from, from death, from physical death. If the Roman siege had gone on longer than it did, continuing to advance beyond the borders of Jerusalem, the Jewish believers who fled with such little preparation would not have escaped either the sword of the Romans. They might have initially done so. But again, as he, as he said, if those days had not been cut short, if, it, if, if God had just let loose and said, have at it, he's saying no one would be left. No Jew. Not even the believing Jew, right? Like it, everyone would be consumed in this. But as Christ promised, many of the believing Jews escaped and endured to the end of Jerusalem's destruction. Now, of course, a global judgment, such an escape would not be an option, right? And, and, it, it, and it will not, by the way, right? So why I think this is a local judgment to Jerusalem is because the majority of what follows is Jesus instructing them how to escape this judgment, how to escape this death that is coming to Jerusalem. Uh, whereas with, when, we, when it comes to a global judgment, um, that is not an option. And, it, and, I, and I'm telling you prophetically, God tells us it will not be an option for such an, a physical escape. Speaking of the great and final judgment day when Christ returns, Paul warns in Acts 17 that God commands all people everywhere to repent. He doesn't say, right, go to the hills, go high, just wait it out. He says, all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge the entire world in righteousness. So, I mean, so the escape there is, Lord, have mercy. No physical place on earth will provide refuge in that day. Our only hope on that day will be the mercy and forgiveness provided through faith in Jesus Christ. However, in this instance, in our passage, Jesus is clearly warning and instructing his disciples of the timing and escape of this local judgment upon Israel's capital and holy city, Jerusalem. And verse 19 continues. It says, And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Again, 
uh, we are reminded of Christ's pastoral motivation underlying this message. That it's not just a, a foretelling of things to come, but it's, it, is, it is instructive um, by its very nature. Communicating his concern for, for the vulnerable women in pregnancy and, and who are caring for their young during such a time. However, this is not a note. I just want to point out here, there's so much we could go into, but even that is not a note of utter helplessness and gloom for the pregnant mother. As it is so often regarded, right? I, I've heard people say, well, and, and they're thinking of this in terms of the future, and, and they think, well, I, I better not have kids, right? Like, I'm better off not, not, not uh, being the pregnant woman or the nursing mother. The, the, the emphasis on this, on this passage is that this is a call for prayer. This is, that's, what he, that's, that's where the command is here. It's a call for prayer. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Of course, the winter would be, uh, I mean, we know all about winter here. It's not a fun place to be traveling by foot. Um, and on the Sabbath, right, the Sabbath laws restricted traveling uh, uh, beyond a certain distance. Um, which, by the way, just a side note there, I, I believe it's just one aspect of, of teaching and, and the guidance for us. How do we keep the Sabbath today? Um, Jesus is speaking to them to a time when Christ would die and, and had been resurrected and ascended and the, the law had been fulfilled. And yet here he is, he's telling them, pray that it's not the Sabbath because you're not going to be allowed to travel very far on the Sabbath. To the Christians. He's telling this to the disciples who believe in Christ. It's to be a day that is to be set apart for the Lord. That's just a side point. Pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for indeed, it would be a great why, right? Why are we to pray that way? He says it will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be, right? And again, people hear of this and and will become paralyzed with fear, But the reason Jesus is telling us and he's describing how great this tribulation is is to reemphasize his point that we are to do what? We're to pray. This ought not to drive us to fear and to anxiety and to worry. It ought to drive us to prayer. Earlier in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus exhorted his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So instead of fearing and anxiously worrying about the most troubling days that the Jews ever had or ever would uh, face in their coming days, Christ commands them to pray. To pray for favorable conditions to carry out their escape, to carry out the means that God has provided for them to flee. But there could be obstacles. There could be challenges in the way. So how are they to prepare? How are they to prepare by setting up right their bunkers? And uh, I don't like. I know different different religious groups. They they have these bunkers and they have food that you know that will last them for a certain amount of days, uh, right? Like like that kind of prepare? No, right? What, how does he encourage them to prepare? Pray that they would be able essentially to carry out. God's plan of salvation in this sense, which was that they would escape and, and, and flee to the mountains. Uh, Spurgeon here, he says, the wise men of the present day would have said that prayer was useless under such conditions. Not so the great teacher and example of his praying people. He taught that such a season was the very time for special supplication. Right, like so, and that, I mean, this is the irony. A lot of people who uh, struggle with understanding the sovereignty of God, and they'll say, "Well, if God's, I mean, God says here, uh, he's, He has appointed days, and if those days had not been cut short, right, and no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, 
those days will be cut short. So it's like, and I can see, I can just hear some of the people's, you know, responses to this. Well, you know, if God's already ordained it, if he's, if he's already determined it, then why even pray? Right? If he's already determined all this, why pray? What, what's the answer? Because he told you to. Because God is the, because the, the one who, what is that? The one who um, ordained the end is the one who ordained the means. Right? So if, if he's telling you to pray for this, so that you can escape, that ought to be an encouragement and embolden us to be unceasingly in prayer for such, such a deliverance. And by the way, God gives us the same kind of encouragement in our, in our walk in Christ as well. Um, I, I think it's 2 Corinthians 10. Um, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted uh, with any, beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also be able to provide. He will also provide... Uh, the way of escape. Right? God, He promises a way of, of escape. Are we praying daily? Are we praying in the mornings that God, uh, our Father in Heaven, right, when we get down to the bottom, deliver us from temptation? Right? Are we, are we putting in the, the work beforehand, the spiritual labor, to prepare us for God's deliverance throughout the day that He has promised us? Well, we see it here on a, on a kind of a larger, um, more practical scale. But again, I'm just trying to help us see how, how this really applies to, the whole, to our whole life as Christians. So we're to pray when faced with tribulation, great and small. But I mean, here, we're, we're essentially saying it's the greatest tribulation as has been from the beginning of the world until now. No, never will be. The same, it's the same solution, the same call. Pray. Once the Roman general Titus had completely encircled the city for that last time, before he had even marched into the city, the Idumeans had stirred up a revolution within Jerusalem, bringing war into the outer courts of the temple itself. Josephus records how the temple was defiled everywhere with murders as they, as they arrived. I've mentioned the, the, the starvation during the siege, reportedly resulting uh, in a woman killing and eating her own son. There's, there's many stories like that that are, that are reported. And other such horrifying reports recorded from Josephus. Ultimately, leaving it to the Roman army to finish the job shortly after, resulting in the slaughtering of what is believed to have been hundreds of thousands of Jews throughout that period. And, and, and you have to keep in mind, though, there wouldn't have been millions of Jews that lived in Jerusalem at that time, many of them were being misled and many of them were pouring into Jerusalem as a city of refuge. I mean, Jerusalem, right, was walled. That's generally what you did, especially if you were very living in small villages and very vulnerable. Your place of refuge would be to go to the large city. And, and Jerusalem was very well fortified. It, I mean, right, it, 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 it stood for such a long time for a reason. And so, but part of what that ended up doing was that all these Jews are flooding into Jerusalem for safety and then they end up getting slaughtered as, as the Roman army infiltrates it. Uh, Josephus, he estimates, he says, he reports one million, uh, a million and one hundred thousand Jews were slaughtered. And the Romans upon the flight, uh, this is Josephus, he says, the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, and upon all the buildings lying around it, brought their ensigns, which was just the Roman symbols, to the temple, and set them over against its eastern gate. And there they did offer sacrifices to them with the greatest acclamations of joy. So in, so in addition to the destruction of the holy city, it all culminated with this final abominable act within the temple itself. Again, just to give you a different, another historical perspective, another voice from history. Uh, premillennialist, uh, pastor and preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He, com- he comments on this passage and he says, he says, read the record written by Josephus 
of the destruction of Jerusalem and see how truly our Lord's words were fulfilled. The Jews impiously said concerning the death of Christ, his blood be on us and on our children. Never did any other people invoke such an awful curse upon themselves and upon no other nation did such a judgment ever fall. We read of Jews crucified till there was no more wood for making crosses, of thousands of the people slaying one another in their fierce faction fights within the city, of so many of them being sold for slaves that they become a drug in the market, and all but valueless, and of the fearful carnage when the Romans at length entered the doomed capital, and the blood-curdling story exactly bears out the Savior's statement uttered nearly 40 years before the terrible events occurred. End quote. Uh, a historian, John von Maesham, he, he writes that throughout the whole history of the human race, we meet with but few, if any, instances of slaughter and devastation at all to be compared with this. And then again, as, if you're trying to register those numbers and say, well, how can that be? Uh, theologian D.A. Carson, he, he further comments here, he says, Never has so high a percentage. Right? We're talking about ratios here. Um, I mean, right? Like the population of the earth is 7 billion. I don't know what the population of the earth was there. But I mean, you're talking about over two-thirds of the population of, of, of the Jews being utterly annihilated and wiped out. Uh, Carson says, Never has so high a percentage of a great city's population been so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. And then just to kind of for you to think of on top of that, even more lamentable than this in the mind of the Jew who remained blind to the significance of the cross would have been the indefinite end this, of the temple that, that, that this brought. That would have brought, uh, the, the end it would have brought to the sacrificial system uh, of worship. Right? For 2,000 years, since the time of Abraham, I mean, this, the temple had been about a thousand year period, but for 2,000 years since Abraham, the Jews worshiped God through animal sacrifice. And it all came to a sudden halt here. And thus, the abomination of desolation was the terrifying judgment of God, which brought a complete and concise end to what remained of the old covenant era and making a way for the establishment of Christ's new covenant kingdom on earth in anticipation of his bodily return and the resurrection of the dead. So as I've mentioned again and again, this was an end, but not the end. It was, it was the end to which the disciples asked about, but not the end of, of the entire world. Verse 22 says, And if those days had not been cut short, if those days had not been cut short, it, it would have been the end of the entire world. He said, but he's, sorry, he says, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect here refers to those whom God has chosen and called out of the path of judgment and destruction. Generally speaking, that's often what it refers to. Those whom God has called out from, from their path and their way of destruction and called to himself to be his own. The Apostle Peter, he's writing to, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. So that's he's writing to, to the elect, to the chosen exiles of the dispersion, of the, of the Jews who had gone out. In 1 Peter 2 9, he says, But you are a chosen, you, it's the same word, you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. As Abraham protested 
in Genesis 18, as he was interceding for Sodom. And he says to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Right? He says, you won't, for the sake of 50 righteous, you wouldn't, you wouldn't destroy the whole city. All, 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 just, just because of all these wicked men. What, what if there's 50? Then he says, what if there's 40? What if, right? and, he, and God says, well, for, this, for the sake of 10, I'll spare it. Indeed, God would not decree total and complete annihilation of every single Jew for the sake of the one righteous man found among them, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who were found in him. Again, it's a story of judgment, but it's also a story of God's deliverance and salvation. Is it not a wonder... That God has not done away with the world and its filth and rebellion and evil already. Right? I mean, as, as you can apply that, 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 same, that statement to today, if those days had not been cut short, if, God's, if God had not and is not actively withholding his wrath, and his judgment that we deserve this very day, we would be done. It is not our goodness which holds back the Father's judgment, but his sovereign will that the Son should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, Jesus said in John 6. That is our hope for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those whom God has chosen and called to himself. What a hope that is. What an encouragement to us to endure. And again, I'm applying it to us, to his disciples, to endure in prayer to the one who has ordained all things and to the one who has decreed its end. It's beginning and end. To trust in the good shepherd who says of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the assurance and the promise they were given. And that's the assurance and promise in which they held on to as they endured and they waited upon the Lord. Again, I note. As we wrap this up in this passage that Jesus was speaking of his disciples being saved or rescued from physical death. At least primarily that's, that's what it's referring to. And history, as I just kind of briefly said, history testifies that it was so. That many, many of the Jews who, who heard, who listened to Christ's call and who fled to the mountains, they did, their lives were spared. But even physical judgment cannot be separated from its root of spiritual rebellion against the authority and righteous law of God who created and sustained us. Or we, can't, we can't just say, well, that, we cannot, while we can dis- distinguish between the two, we cannot say they have nothing to do with each other. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that, that death, I believe, refers to both physical and spiritual death. And that, that's another, another study in itself. And the Son of God who died and was buried and rose on the third day for our justification calls upon all men, all women and children to rest upon his salvation from the eternal death and punishment that Jesus is going to repeatedly warn us about as we continue through the Olivet Discourse in chapter 25. The judgment which he says that the, that day and hour in which no one knows. But he's going to, but the, and the whole point is going to, going to be, therefore, be ready. Are you ready? God has decreed his eternal judgment of the living and dead. And we do well when remembering and considering 
his temporary judgments and faithfulness carried out throughout history to see to it that we are prepared both in, in body and spirit to meet him in that day. If, if he said, if he's, again, I, I keep saying, that I meant, uh, you know, mentioning this application of, of the relevance of this, of all that took place to us today. If, God, if Christ prophesied it, and if he said it was going to happen and God did it exactly when he said he, could, he would, how much more then should, are we to take seriously the day of judgment, which he says is still to come? That we be prepared. And that we would cast our hope. Cast your hope. Not upon your own righteousness. Your own goodness. Your own ability to prepare yourself. To be ready for whatever might come your way. But pray. And seek the Lord and cast yourself upon the the righteousness of Christ. Through faith in Him. Rejoicing and resting in His promise and His eternal decree of salvation that rests not upon you and your works, but upon Christ and His faithfulness, His perfect sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank You for Your help that You've given us In this passage, we thank you, Lord, as we, we, as we study it and we recall your faithfulness to, not, that, to, to see how this was not only carried out, but to see how you were true to your word and how it, it sobers us and, uh, and uh, hastens us to, to, um, to get serious about our sin and about the ways in which we've rebelled against you and, and the punishment that is due it. And how it also emboldens us and encourages all who would flee and cast themselves upon Christ and his word, upon the, uh, upon the rock and not upon the sinking sand and the way and, and the, the opinions of, of different people today. And Lord, I pray that... that Again, that your spirit, as we study this and as we continue to, to go through your word, Lord, that it would strengthen our faith and our trust in what you have said and what you have done and in what you are doing in our life today and what you, and, and what you will do. Lord, increase our fear of you. Lord, increase our, may this increase our love for our neighbor, our love for the laws, our, our urgency, our eagerness to tell them of the way of salvation. And above all, God, may you be honored and may you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.